0: Good morning, A couple of points of family business this morning before we uh, before we begin our sermon. Uh, the first Daniel caught this it 's important for everyone to know in the bulletin it says that uh, rose 's memorial is going to be on the thirteenth it 's not on the thirteenth it 's on Friday the seventeenth I think that was in the email that went out, but we want to make sure that you know that uh, Rose Killens Memorial will be here at the building on Friday the 17th, and so i uh, be keeping that in mind. Uh, the second point of business, next week is our family retreat. Uh, if you have not registered, technically you're too late, but also I, I grant you clemency, and you can go ahead and register now. Um, we have, I believe, 82 people registered for family retreat. That's a significant portion of the congregation. Um, I'm excited about that. There are a lot of kids coming out. There are a lot of our youth group members coming out, a lot of adult members coming out, Uh, and so it will genuinely be all of us together for a period of time. And so I want to encourage you, if you have been hesitant because you think that your friends aren't going to be there, and so you didn't register, that was always a problem in youth group stuff, your friends are going to be there. And if you're not there, then your friends are going to be disappointed because they're not going to get to see you. So register for family retreat if you haven't already. I will I will plead with uh, Scott and Robin to forgive us on our miscount with our early registration numbers. So um, finally, the, the last thing I want to tell you about, uh, we, we have set up the chairs. I'm going to draw the elephant in the room again. It's going to be all about the chairs today. Uh, we have set up the chairs in this particular arrangement this morning because this was the Easiest and most obvious way to set them up. But we want to let you know there's a good chance that over the next several weeks, maybe even the next several months, we might try some different chair arrangements just depending on uh, how things go. A lot of it is we want to make sure that it's, it's accessible. And one of the things that we've thought about is if we have more than one center lane, we might be able to accommodate more individuals with mobility issues. Um, and so we're considering the possibility of having a center aisle and two outside aisles. We're considering some, some alternative arrangements. So if you walk in one Sunday morning to a complete rearrangement of the chairs, uh, don't be surprised. No one has come to vandalize our auditorium. We're just getting creative. And finally, um, to kind of share with you what it was that John was saying, we had initially offered uh, parts of the pews, which turned out the back were literally oak flooring, uh, to Camp Yamhill, with the possibility of them using it for flooring in the, the small lodge. Um, Scott King thought it was a good idea, uh, saw the, the materials and said, I just don't think it's enough Uh, And I don't think we could match it well enough to be able to make up the difference. And so he declined that. However, John has a connection with a uh, ministry that reclaims uh, building materials and things like that for missions efforts. Uh, Now, if the materials can be sent to be used in missions, they'll do that. And if they can't, they will be sold with the intention of the proceeds going towards missions. Am I representing that correctly, John? Uh, And we had been working with them on other parts of the pews, specifically the plywood that made up uh, the seats. Um, And so we have arranged for them to have that material as well. And so the money or the materials are all going towards mission efforts. And so we want to let you know about that as well. In case you were wondering, we want to make sure that's clear. Um, all of that said, uh, let's again do as Chuck said and shift our focus to Jesus this morning as we uh, look at what it is that He does here in the Gospel of John. I appreciate Micah's reading this morning and the the words that he shared with us. This is such a peculiar story in so many ways. You know, often when Jesus heals a person, He just does it by His words. Uh, he He says, "Be healed." Uh, sometimes people, in one particular case, will touch Jesus and they're healed as a result of it. Uh, There's a time where Jesus literally touches a group of lepers and they're healed. And, uh, you know, that's a kind of dangerous sort of thing to do. This is the strangest healing that Jesus does because he spits in the dirt and makes mud and rubs it on the guy's eyes. And I think we've actually talked about this before, how unusual all of this is, especially given... Jewish sanitary laws and customs. It's just very strange that this is the manner in which Jesus heals this man. And I wonder sometimes why does John include these particular details in writing his gospel? And of course, if you go and you read through the entire story, you see that there's a whole trial that ends up going on. Really, these these people that approach the man and they want to interrogate him and question him. They bring his parents in and they interrogate and question them. And, And they are all trying to figure out not who Jesus is, but how this could potentially be a bad thing. Which is strange to us because we read the story and we think if a man has been made well, if he's been given sight, he was born blind, has never seen anything before, and suddenly can see, isn't that an inherently good thing? And yet there's this group of people that on encountering this situation would think it's anything but good. Now, there are a lot of characters involved in this situation that see things happening, that that begin to ask questions, and there are the man's neighbors. They're the first ones I want us to kind of look at here. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? This crowd of people that kind of recognize him, but not really. You know, I've always thought this was really interesting that like his actual neighbors, the people who lived near him, who saw him every day, had never really paid enough attention to be able to recognize his face. Isn't that kind of a shame? That like, you could live next door to someone, you could live in the same neighborhood as them, you could walk past them every day, and when they have good news to celebrate, and everyone is talking about this good news, you're like, yeah, but is that even the same guy? I don't know. Is that, is that really the blind man? And it doesn't seem that anyone even knows his name. They don't know how to address him or interact with him. And he has to plead with them to believe that this is in fact a miraculous moment in his life because they don't even know him well enough to pick him out of a crowd. What a shame. I am the man. Of course, we have this moment here. It says, The man answered, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews who are interrogating him. they, They doubt the miracle, or they doubt the source of the miracle. It says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he, meaning the man who has healed me, comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This whole chapter ends up becoming about testimony, about witness to the good news that this man has encountered. And, And he's got some people that aren't even sure that the good news happened in the first place. He's got other people who aren't really sure that it's good news because of the source of the individual that did it. And all he can say is, look... I know it's good news for me, and I know that God isn't going to give me good news out of the mouth of a a person who's sinful. He's not going to heal me by the power of a demonically possessed man. This is indeed good news. God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. The Pharisees continue to interrogate him. So the Pharisees, again, asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, but he does not keep the Sabbath. Or for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Again, some testimony, some questioning about the whole situation. How can a man who is a sinner do such things? He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So the man's testimony, his own account of the things that have happened to him is not sufficient. And in verse 21, his parents are responding to the Pharisees and in their interrogation of them. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Why is his testimony not good enough for you? What does he stand to gain from lying to you about how he has been made well? Nobody believes the man. If they do believe the man, they're not really sure if they believe in the one who healed him. In fact, the whole situation is kind of of anticlimactic in a lot of ways. You come home with good news and you start you're telling your family that it's good news and all these great things have happened and they start asking you, yeah, but you know, what about the consequences of this? You know, uh, yeah, you found, you found that we suddenly have you know, a, a wealthy benefactor who sent us a load of money and he's not a Nigerian prince. Uh, You know, how is that good news? You know, maybe we got to pay taxes on that. Isn't that unfortunate? We have to pay taxes on this amount of money that's been given to us. Maybe this person really just wished us harm the whole time. You know, I, I think that this is just awful, actually. And suddenly you start feeling like maybe your good news isn't good news. But that's not the case for this man. Every single time that someone encounters him and challenges him on what it is that he has experienced and what has happened to him, he continually responds... In the positive. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. Look, you can't can't take this away from me. It doesn't matter what you think you know about the man who healed me. It doesn't matter whether or not you know who I am. If I was in fact the man born blind, it doesn't matter whether or not you believe my testimony or my parents' testimony. It doesn't matter if you interrogate me a thousand times. This is always going to be good news for me. I was blind and now I see. This, I think, might be the most important message that we as Christians can take away from this particular section of Scripture. Maybe in some ways, today, this is the thing we most need to hear. It doesn't matter what the naysayers say. It doesn't matter how many times we've been interrogated and people walk away unconvinced about our good news. It doesn't matter how often people doubt whether or not we were, in fact, the person we say we were and are now someone different as a result of our encounter with Jesus. All we know is that we were blind and now we see. And the doubts of other people cannot possibly be the thing that dampens that good news. We know what we know. And the belief of others in our movement, our change, the way in which Jesus has impacted us, does not change the good news that we have experienced. This man could be interrogated a thousand more times. And he would remember a life of not seeing and being made to see. But You see, there's all these distractions for everybody else. There's agendas at stake. There are things that they want that if in fact this good news is true, they're simply not going to be able to have. For the neighbors, it means that they're actually going to have to acknowledge that this just isn't a blind guy anymore, but something miraculous has happened in their neighborhood and that they've spent their entire lives ignoring a man in need to the point that they don't even recognize his face. For the Pharisees, it means that this may very well, in fact, be the Messiah that's been promised. The one that the prophet said would heal the blind, would allow those who were lame to walk, who would open the ears of the deaf and allow the mute to speak. In fact if they acknowledge that Jesus has done what he has said he has done, what this man claims has happened to him, it means that they have to give up a significant amount of influence over the people around them and say, you know what? In light of the return of the, Messiah, of the coming of the Messiah, we have to hold our tongues. Because the one that was promised is here. The one that has come to tell us the truth of the law, the one who has come to reveal to us God's ultimate plan to save us from our sins, stands before us. But if he's here, the people don't need me to tell them how to keep the law. If he's here, I lose my political authority. If he's here, you know what that actually means? It means I'm just like everybody else, in need of this man to save me. That's awfully inconvenient for my ambitions and my plans. There are a lot of distractions keeping people from seeing what actually happens here. And now I go back to what it is that Jesus does in the healing of this man. You know, he spits on the ground, he mixes up some dirt and makes it into mud, sticks it on the man's eyes and goes and tells him to wash in the pool. It's not that Jesus couldn't have just said, see. Jesus is perfectly capable of that. But maybe Jesus wants us to wrestle with the distraction for a moment here. I'm going to do this a little different this time. And I'm going to see if they're more caught up on the details of the how than of the what. Are they going to be so caught up in, why Why did he mix up the mud? I know I've been caught up in the why did he mix up the mud? Why the spit? Why not just take him down to the river and like make some sanitary mud? Is there such a thing? Why? And I think the man would say, look, I don't know why he spit in the dirt and made mud and rubbed it on my face. At the time, I thought it was kind of gross. But I know now I was blind and I see. I think John maybe includes all these details. I think the reason Jesus does it, first of all, is because he wants us to wrestle with the distraction for a moment and see if that distracts us from the miracle that happens. I think John records it because it's significant to the theme of this chapter. Look, are you going to be distracted by a bunch of things? Are you actually going to see what happened in this man's life? Are you actually going to see who Jesus is and what he is about? Or are you going to be so busy caught up in the question of why the mud? Well, the man is not caught up in that question. In fact, every time that someone wants to drag his mind away from the identity, the real identity of Jesus and the miracle that has happened to him, he constantly comes back and he says, Look, I don't know, but my assumption is this. Based on the evidence that I've been given, the man is a prophet. The man's not a sinner. I was blind, but now I see. And he goes on a walk after talking to the Pharisees, who are at this point really frustrated with him because he simply won't play into their game and agree that this man must be a sinner who's trying to deceive everybody. And he encounters Jesus. Now, here's the thing. He has not seen Jesus face-to-face yet. Jesus has sent him away to wash in the pool, And when he comes back, he begins interacting with his neighbors and the Pharisees. We don't know how long passes over the course of time, from the time that he's healed until the time he sees Jesus. But this is the moment in which he encounters Jesus, where they have a little conversation. And this is what happens. He says, Lord, I believe. When faced with Jesus, who tells him that he is in fact the Son of Man, that great figure in the book of Daniel. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The conversation that they have, he, he comes into it not knowing the face of Jesus, but encountered with the one who says, I am the son of man. He has no further response but to fall down and worship and say, I believe. It doesn't matter what the detractors have said. It doesn't matter whether or not anyone else thinks this is good news. I know what this is. Micah and I were talking about this verse this morning because I've been wrestling with it all week because I've told you twice over the last uh, several months that Jesus makes the very strong claim in John chapter 3 And then in John chapter 8, I have not come to judge. And then I started reading this next part. It says, Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. Now, here's the problem. Suddenly, I'm wrestling with this, and I'm like, if Jesus says he came not to judge, and now he's saying, for I came into the world for judgment, or for judgment, I came into this world, what in the world is he talking about? Is Jesus contradicting himself here? For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, I'm going to do some some exegeting here for just a second. A judge walks into a courtroom and stands in front of the court and says, For judgment I have come into this courtroom. That is a claim of a role that they're going to play, a job, a duty that they have to perform, a task at hand. They will judge. And now the defendant walks into the courtroom and says, For judgment, I have come into this courtroom for you to decide, for you to make judgment. About me, I think here Jesus is telling us something very clearly. I have come into the world for people to make a determination about who I am. And the people who are least likely, as far as you're concerned, to know who I am, they'll know. And for the people who have the greatest reason to recognize me, they'll have no idea. For the ones that are so busy looking all over the place for so many different things that are distractions in their lives, they're going to miss it entirely. They are seeing, but they are blind. And for those people who have not been able to have all the distractions because their eyes have been closed and they didn't even know where to look, I will open their eyes. They will see this verse has taken on a whole new meaning for me over the last couple of weeks really, and, and especially the last week. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who may see uh, those who see may become blind. This whole chapter is about whether or not we're going to make a determination on the identity of Jesus. Are we going to recognize the good news in our own lives? Are we going to recognize the good news in other people's lives? Will we let the testimony of those whom Jesus has changed, who he has touched, who he has given sight to, affect us? Will we be looking for all the wrong details? Are we going to be caught up in the mud that's been on their face before? Are we going to be asking, yeah, but... Were you really that bad to begin with? Are you sure that you know how much Jesus changed your life? My encouragement to you this morning is this we have to decide for ourselves who Jesus is. We have to decide whether or not we let the outside voices distract us from that revelation. And we have to decide, as Chuck has told me before, what our good news is. What our gospel is. And if it's good news, it does not matter what the testimony of others may be. We must know that we were blind and now we see. But there's some Pharisees that are standing alongside this all. They're, they're observing what's going on. Some Jews, it says, some Pharisees and Sadducees. And they, they overhear this conversation. Of course, they've been in there interrogating this man and his family. And they turn and they ask, are we also blind? first question that we ask is, are we going to let the distractions outside keep us from seeing Jesus for who he is? But The second question we have to ask is, are we also blind? Are we the blind people who have been made to see? Or are we the seeing people who have been blinded by all the distractions? It's going to change the way that we minister to the people around us, the way that we show love to them. It's going to change the way that we testify to the identity of Jesus. It's going to change everything for us, how we answer that question. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are good and you are faithful. And you have sent your Son into the world.